Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. If you'll take your Bibles, we are, of course, continuing in Colossians. We're in chapter 3, and we will be looking at verses 14 through 6, or 12 through 14, I should say, this morning. Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Of course, we are proud and glad to live in America. We are proud to be Americans, and I certainly hope your holiday weekend includes being thankful for all that we have. But as you've heard this morning through song, our hope is not in our government. Our hope is not in our military. Our hope is in God, and it is in God we trust. We've said that from the very beginning of our nation, and we hope to continue to say that because that is where our hope lies because ultimately, though we rejoice in being citizens of American, we are ultimately citizens of heaven. And so we are grateful for that uh, place that we have in Christ. Of course, we know that there are a lot of divisions in America. We hear and see of them all the time. We know that there are a lot of different kinds of people in our country. We have always been a melting pot, a place where people of all nations and ethnicities can come and ultimately find a home. And because of that, there are always going to be differences. We are not a homogeneous group. That is, we are not all alike. We have many different backgrounds and many different ideas and opinions and personalities, and because of that, there will always be divisions of some sort in our country, very much like the church. That is, there will always be divisions in the church, because remember, we saw last week that when we come to faith in Christ, all of the barriers have been broken down. That doesn't mean that there are no longer Jews and Greeks. It doesn't mean that there are no longer races or nationalities or differences in economies and all those kinds of things, but it means we are all equal in Christ, so the barriers have been broken down. All are welcome in the church, which means there are going to be problems and conflict in the church. You know that, but that conflict would be greatly minimized if we could learn the proper attire at church. That is, if we could come to church, with, in spite of all of our backgrounds, if we could come to church with the proper attire, it would go a long way in minimizing the difficulties and struggles within the church. Now, some of you are already concerned that I might just say something about what you wore this morning. You're thinking to yourself, perhaps this wasn't the day to wear what I wore because he's about to criticize what I'm wearing. And you're right, I am gonna criticize what you're wearing. Some of you, on the other hand, are thinking to yourself, I'm glad he is finally dealing with this topic. I mean, I am tired of coming to church and seeing the way people are dressed and how disrespectful they are. And I'm glad he is finally going to deal with it. And to you, I would say once again, you're right, I am going to deal with it. Now, I don't know how often you go on church sites, that is websites, but when you go on church websites, you will generally find a section called Frequently Asked Questions. 
And under those frequently asked questions, invariably there will be a question about attire. What do I wear to church? Generally, the answer to that will be something like this. Well, we want you to wear whatever's comfortable. That is, when you come to our church, you will find people that are wearing suits or dresses. You will also find people that are more business casual, and you will find people in jeans and other sorts of attire. So when you come to our church, you will find people wearing all sorts of things. The ultimate thing is that you are comfortable with whatever you are wearing, making it sound at least like it doesn't really matter what you wear to church. You wear whatever you want. Well, I'm here to tell you that it does matter what you wear to church, that proper attire is required. Indeed, proper attire is commanded by God. So what is the dress code? Well, I'm glad you asked. And hopefully you understand that this has nothing to do with the kind of clothes you're wearing. It has nothing to do with the exterior clothing that we've decided to put on in order to come to church this morning. Instead, we're talking about the proper character and conduct within the body of Christ. Last week, we talked about the vice list. We saw two vice lists in the verses from 5 to 11 of chapter 3, and those were the things we were to put off. And we said that that was a clothing imagery. In fact, it might even be a baptismal imagery. Paul is saying, when you are buried with Jesus, you put off the old clothing. But that's only half the equation. Because when you are raised to live a new life in Christ, it is now time to put on the new clothing. That is, you put off the vice and you put on the virtues. I had one of our esteemed members come up to me last week after I preached, and he said this. Remember, my title last week was Clean House. He said, the problem with me when I clean house, that is when I get rid of all of this junk that I've accumulated, the problem in my house is that when I get rid of those things, my wife simply fills those places with her own junk. And that's sort of true in a lot of homes. So the fact that we've put off the vices last week is only half a step. Now we've got to make sure we put on the right things. Otherwise, we're just going to wind up putting on other vices. Now, I haven't used a song title in a long time. So I'm going to use one this morning. And no, it's not country music. That's going to surprise you. ZZ Top familiar with them every girl's crazy about what a sharp dressed man and so what we want to talk about this morning is proper attire in the church what does it look like Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12 put on then as God's chosen ones holy and beloved compassionate hearts kindness humility meekness and patience bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another forgiving each other as the lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive and above all these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony all right so there's the proper attire for the church 
Now, that's not to say it's not proper outside of the church. I'm simply acknowledging that Paul is writing this letter to the church, dealing with the relationships that go on in the church. And so ultimately, and most importantly, the application is within the body of Christ. So what is the proper attire for church? Well, first of all, we notice that what we wear expresses who you are. We notice we're talking here about conduct. Now, I'm not talking, of course, again, about the exterior clothes we wear. We're talking about the conduct of a Christian, what we choose to exhibit within the body of Christ, how we interact and respond to one another goes a long way in saying what is ultimately on the inside. That is, we can, we can put on our Sunday best for a few hours. We can clothe ourselves with the right virtues for a brief period of time, convincing everybody that we are someone who we really aren't. But eventually, our actions and our attitudes ultimately demonstrate who we really are. And that's one of the main reasons that we need to make sure we put these things on. Because one of the problems in evangelicalism in our day is that study after study shows that there is very little, if any, discernible difference between the actions of a believer and the actions of a non-believer. And the result of that is that people looking at the church can't see any noticeable difference in our lifestyle, and therefore they conclude that there's no reason, no necessity of being part of the body of Christ. And so invite as we might and urge people to come as we do, we struggle to get them here. Like most churches, we talk about reaching our community. We have a desire to see people come to faith in Christ and have the salvation and all that that entails. But if we want to have that, and I know we do, it ultimately begins with you and I treating one another appropriately within the body of Christ so that the world can see a difference in how we live. And so Paul tells us here that proper attire expresses who we are. It is a reflection on who is controlling our lives. The Bible always anchors behavior in our relationship with Christ. In other words, when we get to this virtue list in a moment, we are not to put on these virtues so that we can be a better citizen. We are not to put on these virtues so that we can be more popular. We are encouraged or indeed commanded to put on these virtues on the basis of who we are in Christ. Now, when I was a youth minister many years ago, I was a youth minister in two different churches, one in my senior year of college in Georgia and the other during summers in South Carolina. And when I was in those churches, both of those churches had what many used to have, some still do, that is church vans. And you know that those church vans always had the name of the church on the side of the van. And so every time I took a youth group outside of the city and we went on a trip, I would remind them before we got on the van, I would say, you see that the name of the church is on the van, which means anything you do while you're on this van, any action that you might perform while we're passing somebody else on the interstate, is not only a reflection on you, it is a reflection on our church. That is, they're going to see the name of our church and they're going to connect your actions with our church. And it's not just while you're on the van. When we spend the night in a hotel, those folks are going to know that we are a church group. 
I've made the reservations in the name of the church. So they're going to know that we are a church youth group. And they're going to make some conclusions about what a Christian is or is not based on how we act while we are in that hotel room. And therefore, how you act is a reflection on our church. And ultimately, how you and I act is a reflection. It is an expression of who we are in Christ. So who are we? Well, Paul gives us three things here. He says, number one, you are selected by God. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones. Now, I know there's a lot of controversy over the doctrine of election. We seem to have no problem with it in the Old Testament where God consistently calls Israel his chosen people. But when we come to the New Testament, we seem to have a problem with that. This whole issue of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man and how these two things can possibly go together. I'm certainly not going to conclude that discussion this morning. But there is one thing on this topic I want you to understand. The Bible does say that God is the author and finisher of our faith, that he is in control of our salvation, which is why when we think about our salvation, regardless of our theology, we instinctively thank God for our salvation. I have yet to meet anyone, I've yet to hear anybody in prayer say, thank you, God, that I saved myself, or take God out of the equation at all and just pat myself on the back and say, congratulations, you saved yourself. We don't do that because we instinctively know that salvation is of the Lord, a gift from him, and therefore we thank him and praise him for it. And so we are reminded that we have been selected by God. He has given us this salvation and this doctrine was always meant to be an encouragement, not a division within the church, but an encouragement that God has chosen you. And secondly, not only are we selected by God, but he goes on to say we are set apart by God. That's what the word holy there means. We are uniquely and specifically his, not for common use. If you go to those Old Testament passages, you look at those passages that deal with the temple, and you see that there are objects in the temple that are set apart for worship in the temple. They were not to be used for common things. They were holy and special to the Lord. And that is what the Bible says about us. And then thirdly, we are special in the sense that we have a special relationship with God. He calls us here beloved. Now there is, an, of course, a sense in which that God loves all people. But there is another sense in which we as his children are the objects of divine love. There are degrees of love, of course. In other words, you and I could rightfully say that we love this church. We love the people of this church. And that is a right thing to say, and hopefully it is your actual feeling or belief. On the other hand, we would also acknowledge that when it comes to our immediate family, our love is deeper in that immediate family than it is for the relationship of love that we have with one another. And similarly, God loves all people, but he has a special kind of love for those whom he has saved. And so all of these things are who we are, which then leads to the five virtues that we are to express by virtue of who we are. If we're to be properly attired for church, based on who we are in Christ, we are to express these virtues. So what are they? Well, the first there is compassion. That means a heart 
of mercy. We've already heard sung this morning, pleading with God to have mercy on us. And likewise, we are to express compassion or mercy to one another because of who we are in Christ. That ought to motivate us. God's mercy for us should motivate us to be merciful or compassionate towards others. The second one there is kindness. Christians ought to be the kindest people on earth, especially when it comes to how we treat one another in the body of Christ. You know we live in a culture where everyone is out for themselves. That's all they seem to care about. That is not to be the culture of the church. The culture of the church is to be kind toward one another. Humility is the third word on the list. And this was not a quality esteemed by the ancient world, and it is still not a quality looked favorably on today. It means lowliness of thinking. In other words, it means to have a proper view of ourselves in terms of our relationship with God. It does not mean that we have to be a doormat to everyone else, that we have to let everybody walk all over us and can never stand up for ourselves or for others. In fact, Moses is said to be one of the most humble men that ever lived. And yet Moses was a courageous leader who regularly showed courage in the face of conflict. And so humility does not equal being a doormat. And then lastly, there is meekness. Some of your translations may say gentleness. It speaks of power under control. It's a word that was used of bringing a wild horse under control. I don't know how many of you have ever had that experience. I have not. I have rode horses before. And in fact, there were several occasions where I thought I was in control of the horse and the horse proved otherwise. Because as gentle as you might decide that a horse is, you must never forget that that's a powerful animal. And so he might appear gentle and actually be so, but he's still powerful. And so gentleness is power under control. These are the virtues that we are to put on. These are the character qualities that we are to express. Again, not just so we can be better citizens, but so that we express who we are, the last one being patience. It's a difficult one for many of us, myself included, because we want everything now. We don't like lines. We don't like delays. But when dealing with people, we want them to respond now in the way that we expect them to respond. And that's simply not always the case, especially in the life of the church. Now, again, the church is not specifically mentioned in these verses, but but you see, and not, not only is he writing to the church, but you see that these, these virtues are worthless alone. In other words, when I'm all by myself, I can be kind. That's not a problem. When I'm not dealing with other people, I, I can be patient. I mean, inherently, these qualities, these virtues are to be applied in our relationship with one another because by themselves, they are, in a sense, worthless, because I don't apply them just to me, I apply them to my relationship with you as an expression of who we are. Secondly, we notice the proper attire for the church is uh, given here because it reflects who we belong to, verse 13. These two things we see here are going to be a reflection of how Christ has dealt with us. Paul says in verse 13 that Christ deals with us patiently and graciously, and therefore that's how we are to respond to one another. We are to demonstrate who we belong to by the way we treat 
one another. Now again, he says that if quarrels arise, that is, there are going to be difficulties, and anybody who's been in church any length of time knows this is true. If you've been raised in church, you know that there are quarrels within the church. The only way you don't know that there are quarrels in the church is if you've only been in the church for a limited period of time. All churches have them. If you can find a church that does not have quarrels, you let me know what church that is. And next week, we're all going to transfer our membership to that church. But then that's not going to work either, is it? Because if we did that, we're just taking our quarrels to the new church, and then that new church is going to have quarrels. And the world knows this. There was an article in the USA Today this week that was entitled, Stop Fighting, this is talking about the church, Stop Fighting Each Other and Serve Those in Need. The world is noticing that the church is filled with difficulties and by and large is not necessarily handling them well. So what is our response when we have difficulties in the church? I'm not talking about verse 13 just yet, I'll get there. But what is our response when there's difficulties within the church? Well, there's a couple of options. Number one, you could leave this church and go to another church. That is what a lot of people do. They get frustrated with what's going on in the church. They get mad at someone else. They're not appreciated, whatever the case might be. And so they just decide that what they're going to do is leave this church and they're going to go to another church. Now, don't misunderstand me. There are good reasons to leave, leave a church. There are also many bad reasons to leave a church. And those are more prevalent than the good ones. And so when there's conflict, people just say, well, there's plenty of churches around here. I'm going to go to another church. And that's what they do. And they go to that other church. And at first, because they don't know the inner workings of that other church, they, th they think, well, this is great. I mean, I'm, I'm able to freely come and worship. There's no problems here. There's no conflict. But when they stay at that church long enough, they discover that that church has conflict as well. And then they might repeat themselves and go to another church. In fact, there are people who spend their entire lives jumping from one church to another, thinking that they're going to find one without conflict. It's one of the downsides of having a lot of churches. Now, there's plenty of advantages to having a lot of churches, but one of the downsides is you don't ever have to deal with conflict. You just move from one church to another. The second option we have is that we can just quit this altogether. And that's what many people do. They don't go from one church to another. They go from one church to their home. They just decide it's not worth it. I've got conflict at work, I've got conflict at home, I don't need conflict at church, so I'll just quit church altogether. And so they sit at home, and they decide that they can watch church online, as many people do, not only pre-COVID, but certainly many have done during COVID, and that's been a wonderful blessing. But now it's time to come back and be with the body of Christ, because we were always meant to do this together. The church was always meant to be a place where believers can worship the Lord, fellowship with one another, and serve the Lord together. Because we can't do what verse 13 is telling us to do unless we are with one another. In fact, I did a Sunday night sermon many years ago on the one another's in the New Testament. There are a lot of them, none of which you can apply unless you are part of a local body of believers. And so Paul tells us in verse 13, rather than just going to another church, rather than quitting church altogether, we need to learn how to get along with one another within the body of Christ. 
And I don't mean to elevate this beyond where it should be, but I don't think I'm doing that. If we could just put verses 13 and 14 into practice in the local church, it would go a long way in solving the conflicts in the local church. So what does he say here? Well, he says we are to reflect who we belong to, which means we bear with one another. The word bear is not talking about those in the Smokies. It's a different word from patience that we saw in verse 12, though it's very similar. It means to put up with one another. Now, not in a huffing and grumbling kind of way, but you probably know someone. In fact, their name or image might have immediately popped into your mind. There are always people in our lives that we must put up with. People we must live with who are different, different than us, think different, act different than we do. And they don't always respond, in our opinion, in a biblical manner to the way we think they should. In fact, they might even be sinful in how they are responding. And in a real sense, that is irrelevant this morning because we are commanded to act in a certain way with one another regardless of the circumstances. I realize that is hard, but it's only a twisting of Scripture that says the Christian life is easy. The truth of the matter is God is patient with us. God bears with us. God puts up with us. And because of that, we are to do the same with others. One of the stories that has always intrigued me in the New Testament is the story in Acts about that couple, Ananias and Sapphira. You've probably heard of them. The early church was just getting started. They were selling their property and giving it to the church to be distributed to those in need. They didn't have to do that. There was no command. There was no compulsion. They were voluntarily, the text says, selling what they had so that the church could distribute to those who in need. So Ananias and Sapphira decided they were going to sell a piece of property, and they did. And they gave some of that money to the church which there was nothing wrong with that. The problem was they lied to the apostles and said that this was the whole amount that they sold the land for. Again, they didn't have to give it all. They only gave some, which was perfectly fine, but they lied about how much they gave. And so Peter called them on it. And so Ananias died. He falls down right there in the church and they take his body out and bury him. Short time later, his wife comes in. Peter asks him, her the same question. She also lies. And the Bible says, Peter said to her, the feet that carried your husband out have just come in and they're going to carry you out as well. And she falls over dead. And then the Bible goes on to say what must be one of the great understatements in the scripture. It says, and great fear fell upon the church. You think? I mean, why were they so afraid? Because they realized that they had sin in their life too. And if this is how God is going to treat us, then we're all going to be dead. Now, I don't exactly know why God chose to deal in that situation in that manner. I think it was to send a message to the early church, but I don't know all of the reasons. But I'm glad that's not his normal mode of operation. Because if it were, I would be doing way more funerals every year than I normally do. And to think about it, someone would have to do my funeral as well. But God doesn't always act like that. In fact, more often than not, the normal mode of God is that he puts up with us. 
He bears with us. He has patience with us. And as a result, we are to bear with one another. And then secondly, he says, we are also to forgive one another again because this reflects who we belong to. God has forgiven us and therefore we are to forgive one another. Now, I know sometimes we say, but they don't deserve forgiveness. We might think it, sometimes even people will say it. They will say, well, there's no way I'm ever going to forgive them because they don't deserve forgiveness. Well, let me ask you, did you deserve the forgiveness of God? I mean, was there something about you that God looked down and said to himself, now there's one that deserves my forgiveness? I hope that's not what you think. Because if you do, you have seriously misunderstood the gospel. Forgiveness is by the free grace of God. He forgives us on the basis of, our, of his love, not on anything worthy in us. And as a result, we are commanded to forgive others. And the fact of the matter is, there are going to be times when all of us need to forgive someone else, and, all, and when all of us need the forgiveness of someone else. And frankly, in many situations, both of those things are going to be true. That is, we need to forgive and we need to be forgiven. Holding grudges and being bitter towards others is not a mark of Christianity. It is a mark of the world. And therefore, it has no place in the life of the church. In fact, Scripture is very clear, not only here but elsewhere, that if we refuse to forgive others, it is an indication that we ourselves have not been forgiven. Because we are to recognize who we belong to and reflect that by forgiving one another. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. He told a parable about it, the parable of the unforgiving servant. And the story briefly goes, a servant comes to a king and he had a great debt and the king is going to cast him into prison until he could repay it. And the servant urges him, pleads with him and says, please forgive me the debt. And the king in, in mercy and, and grace and love forgives him the debt. And then the servant goes out and runs into someone on the street that owes him a far less sum of money, and the same situation occurs. He demands payment. The other man who owes him far less than this man owed the king pleads with him to have mercy, and he does not. He throws him into prison. They go back and tell the king what this man has done, and the king calls him in and says, I forgave you so much, and you're unwilling to forgive someone so little? And that's what Jesus is saying about us. If we have been forgiven much, then we must be forgiving toward one another. Thirdly, proper attire not only expresses who we are and reflects who we belong to, but it ultimately brings us together. Verse 14, above all of these things. Now, I know what some of you have been thinking this morning. In fact, hopefully it's not been that huge of a distraction, but you've been thinking to yourself, why is he not wearing a jacket? I had several people comment on this when I was in the foyer. Multiple people came up to me and said, is it casual day? Does this look casual to you? So here's the reason I'm not wearing a jacket. And for those of you who think that I need to have one, I'll put one on for you. This is why I'm putting this jacket on. Verse 14, above all these things, or it could be translated, over all of these things, put on love. What he's saying there 
is that even as you might have thought that a suit is not complete without a jacket, Paul is saying, above all of these other virtues, you must put on love. And if you do not put on love, all of those other virtues are useless. Isn't that what he says in 1 Corinthians 13? Isn't that what he says elsewhere? That if we have not love, we're a, we're a gong, we're a symbol, just making noise and not really accomplishing much? I mean, Paul makes it very clear here that what brings us together is unity in love. Love is the coat. If we continue the, the clothing imagery, which most scholars think we should in verse 14, if we continue that imagery, then love is the coat that is put over everything else, enabling all of those things to work together. And if it's not there, those other things don't. Love is the ultimate or supreme character quality. These, these, these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. If you have a fish emblem on your bumper, if you repost, don't be that person that says, if you love Jesus, repost this. No, if you love Jesus, then love one another. That's what the Bible says. Whether you scroll past that or not makes no difference as to whether you love Jesus. The Bible says making sure others know we love Jesus is on the basis of whether we love one another. And that's where we find unity in the body of Christ. And not only unity in love, but then he goes on to say peace through love. Look at verse 14 again. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together. That's the glue that holds the church together. It is loving not only Christ, but loving one another, which results then in perfect harmony. That's quite a contrast from if anyone has a complaint against another. Now we've got perfect harmony, peace through love. And then we're going to talk about that next week because if you notice, verse 15 begins, and let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. When you and I put on these virtues, it brings us together as a body because we have unity and love and peace through love. I know some of you are thinking to yourself, this is July 4th. This was a unique opportunity, not unique, but every seven years, a unique opportunity for me to preach on America, for me to take this time on July 4th to talk about the divisions that exist in our country and the way to overcome those divisions so that we can have a brighter future. And yet, I stuck to Colossians this morning and hardly mentioned America. And yet, if you're paying attention, did I not just give you the answer to the problems in America? That the church needs to be the church? That we need to express who we are by putting on these virtues? That we need to reflect who we belong to by bearing with and forgiving one another? And that that brings us together when we love and therefore have peace? All of this is summed up by Paul in Romans chapter 13 and verse 14, where he says these words, put on Christ. That's the bottom line. 
that we are to clothe ourselves with Christ so that we respond in the appropriate manner to one another and so that then ultimately the church, I mean the world sees that there's a difference in the church. Oh, how they love one another. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for this country and all the blessings that we have being a part of it. But ultimately, we thank you for our salvation. And we know that because of that salvation, we are to live our lives differently because of who we belong to now. And so I pray that we would put on the virtues of Christ, that we would put on Christ. And that that would be reflected in how we relate to one another within this particular body of Christ, the church. And that as a result, this community would see that there is a difference at Beaver Dam. Those people live differently. Those people talk differently. Those people act differently toward one another. And I want to be a part of that. They see our good works and ultimately glorify you. And so I pray that you would help us to come with the proper attire. Attire that reflects who you are because we belong to you is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.